and welcome to History Obscura, the podcast where the weird and forgotten tales of times past come out to shine. I ask you, listeners, is your favorite type of shopping that which takes place at the bookstore? Can you read through piles of books each week, so absorbed that the rest of the world falls away, to the point where you no longer notice people gazing at your ink-stained fingers with disdain? Yes, I too am a bibliophile. Our numbers, I fear, are waning these days, and that's such a shame after the centuries our people have spent under the paranoid scrutiny of book-haters, who deem the well-educated of their peers to be soft in the head or mentally diseased. Well, one David Hume knew the feeling all too well. Once upon a time... A would-be philosopher was born in Scotland. The year was 1711. A well-read character, Hume became a historian and writer whose works on the subjects of empiricism and skepticism would become highly influential. Though his family had a respectable name in Scotland, Hume had very little family money with which to sustain himself and therefore it was clear to him from a young age that he would need to cultivate a paying career for himself. At a very young age, probably between 10 and 12, Hume joined the University of Edinburgh. The usual age for new students at the university at the time was 14, so Hume's academic record prior to enrollment there must have been quite spectacular. All the same, Hume was not an eager student, believing that he could learn the same subjects from books and skip over the patronization of the university's professors. Having told his family that he would pursue a degree in law, Hume instead discovered a passion for literature and philosophy. Unimpressed with the university's structure of learning, Hume left without a degree. The idea of becoming a lawyer or politician pushed far behind him. Hume changed his career focus to better align with his own personal interests. Determined to make a name for himself in philosophy and other sciences, David Hume changed the spelling of his Scottish surname to match its pronunciation, hoping that this would make him more approachable in England. At the age of 18, Hume had an epiphany of which he would never publicly share the full details. It is generally believed that his bouts of melancholy and constant philosophizing on pessimism versus optimism in terms of religion brought on an understanding that would change his life. Whatever the exact details of the epiphany, it caused him to devote the next ten years of his life to reading and writing. He committed himself so fully to this path that it is said his mental health suffered to the point of a near break. According to the philosopher himself, the sickness began with a nearly year-long chill, after which he developed the telltale signs of scurvy. A doctor, laughing and saying he suffered from the same malady, told Hume that he had the disease of the learned. In 1734, Hume wrote a letter to an unnamed physician who was possibly the proto-psychiatrist Dr. George Shane, author of The English Malady. 
In this letter, Hume described losing his enthusiasm for philosophical works, as well as some somatic symptoms, such as hypersalivation. The letter read, About the beginning of September 1729, all my ardor seemed in a moment to be extinguished, and I could no longer raise my mind to that pitch which formerly gave me such excessive pleasure. In this condition I remained for nine months. At last, about April 1730, when I was 19 years of age, a symptom which I had noticed little from the beginning increased considerably. It was what they call a tylism or wateriness in the mouth. His physician had offered diagnostic advice, although Hume seems to have been slightly reluctant to accept the idea that he was suffering from what we would probably now classify as depression, as he felt his mood was not low. He said, Upon my mentioning it to my physician, he laughed at me and told me I was now a brother, for that I had got the disease of the learned. Of this he found great difficulty to persuade me, Finding in myself nothing of that lowness of spirit, which those who labor under that distemper so much complain of. Upon the advice of the physician, I went under a course of bitters and anti-hysteric pills, drunk an English pint of claret wine every day, and rode eight or nine scotch miles. This I continued for about seven months. Hume's case would not be the first, nor the last case of illness, both mentally and physically, to affect a person whose entire waking life was spent within the pages of books, or lost in the complex matters of existentialism. This condition, which is marked by a deep depression, put Hume's first great work in danger of incompletion. Yet he persevered, and in 1738 he published A Treatise of Human Nature. This book introduced Europeans to some of the author's complex theories concerning the human state of mind and reality. In the pages of his manuscript, Hume argues that our thoughts are formed from simple impressions, which means that all of our cognitive data must be derived from our own experiences through the senses. Hume recognizes, therefore, that the scientific idea of empiricism must be employed to best accommodate the field of philosophy. Empiricism, in scientific terms, refers to a collection of data gained through experiments and research. In philosophy, it is a method of data gathering derived from sensory experiences of humans. It is one of several points of view on epistemology, a field which strives to separate common beliefs from real truths. Hume believed that philosophy was a science of human nature, subject to the same rules as mathematics or biology. He attempted to explain how the mind operates when collecting and compiling data using the scientific method proposed by Sir Isaac Newton. Ultimately, he concluded that there was no way to construct a solid, theoretical model of reality since the only data available was based purely on human experience which may lay outside of reality. In An Inquiry Concerning Human Understanding, he wrote, Where am I, or what? From what causes do I derive my existence? 
and to what condition shall I return? I am confounded with all these questions and begin to fancy myself in the most deplorable condition imaginable, environed with the deepest darkness and utterly deprived of the use of every member and faculty. Most fortunately, it happens that since reason is incapable of dispelling these clouds, nature herself suffices to do that purpose and cures me of this philosophical melancholy and delirium, either by relaxing this bent of mind or by some avocation and lively impression of my senses, which obliterate all these chimeras. I dine, I play a game of backgammon, I converse, and am merry with my friends. And when, after three or four hours' amusement, I would return to these speculations, they appear so cold and strained and ridiculous that I cannot find in my heart to enter into them any further. Hume took an anti-theological approach to the existence of God, setting himself against the theologians who formed the idea of intelligent design. Instead of the popular ideas of the day, Hume argued that God is a difficult concept that we each put together in our own minds. While he recognized that the degree of detail and equilibrium demonstrated by the physical universe was potentially indicative of having been formed by an intelligent creator, he insisted that there was no evidence of God. He began writing his next book in 1755, but it was not finished and published until 1776. The text, entitled Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion, Hume continues with the subject of the divine. This time, however, instead of focusing on the existence or fallacy of God, Hume attempts to circumvent the issue by switching his subject to that of evil. Evil was an equally important subject under the umbrella of organized religions of Europe, one that was at the heart of the Catholic and Protestant churches. There were a series of questions that Hume had to work through in order to determine the role of evil in the world and consider what the answers meant about the existence of God in some form. First, he explained that without God, or a figure of pure good, evil could not exist. Being opposites, one requires the existence of the other. Other questions of importance are, is God unable to combat the evil in the world? Furthermore, if God is against the existence of evil and willing to combat it, then why does evil still exist? Perhaps God is not actually all-powerful, as the Church would have its followers believe. The philosophies described in Hume's masterworks were a clear affront to the variety of churches that had sprung up in Europe, Catholic and Protestants most influential among them. Had Hume published his work a century earlier, there is little doubt that he would have been arrested by the Catholic Inquisition and ultimately put to death for questioning the existence of God and the Word of the Bible. In the religious tumult that had taken place between the time of Galileo and Hume, however, rules concerning one's writing and teachings were much less clear. The Catholic Church had less power than it once had, and though Protestant churches had become less flexible in its own doctrine, the Enlightenment was full of people questioning existence and religious laws. Church leaders were beginning to understand that their positions had become less certain. 
In Scotland and England in particular, religion was undergoing a series of changes, as were the politics of both countries. Hume, therefore, was unusually safe in the far western reaches of Europe while he contemplated the great problems of the world and society. Let me leave you with some of the Scottish philosopher's own words upon which to ruminate this night. Success can only come when you understand how things work, but understanding is one of the hardest things to obtain. There are many out there who will provide misleading facts, produce misleading analysis, or outright lie. They may do so because they are fervent believers in an ideology, because they seek to destroy a rival group, or because they just have no care for ethical considerations. Sometimes, they want to mislead others so they can get ahead through the most dishonest means. Our only protection from such abuses is to embrace skepticism. Hume died in 1776 from cancer. When asked a few weeks before his death, whether he thought he might encounter life after death. He proclaimed it the most unreasonable fancy. By the by, if you're in need of some good luck this year, do drop by David Hume's statue in Edinburgh and rub his big toe. It's the done thing, don't you know? Especially if you're studying philosophy. Thanks for listening. You can support the show by sharing episodes, subscribing to ad-free content on patreon.com forward slash history obscura, buying me a cup of tea on buymeacoffee.com forward slash history obscura, or picking up a History Obscura t-shirt, tote bag, or mug at Tee Public. And remember, in a few weeks, the show's first book is coming out, entitled A Gruesome History of Medicine. Good night. Thank you.